This is episode 112 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The Expulsion of Journalists During a Pandemic. This episode is part of our ongoing series about journalism and journalists, and also part of our daily or near-daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Roy Gutterman is with us, also from Syracuse University, and we had another guest from Syracuse University a few episodes back. I'll introduce him. He's an associate professor and director of the Tully Center for Free Speech at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. He's a former newspaper reporter and lawyer. He teaches courses in First Amendment and media law and sits on the Society of Professional Journalists Freedom of Information Committee. So welcome to the show, Roy. It's great to be here. Thanks. All right. So we've been seeing headlines lately about expulsion of journalists and about American journalists being ordered to leave China. Can you bring us up to speed about that? Well, a few weeks ago... Reporters from several major news organizations, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post, uh, were um, basically expelled from uh, China. They basically had their uh, press credentials uh, revoked, and they were given 10 days to um, to leave. So uh, all in all, reports uh, indicate that there were about 13 journalists in total. I was reading yesterday an article in The Economist about this, and there were several things that I didn't know. I'd seen those headlines. Um, But The Economist said that this was actually part of a series of tit-for-tat moves that China and the U.S. have been engaged in for a while, Um, one of which was Trump forcing CGTN, which I guess is China's state-owned broadcaster, to register as a, quote, foreign agent. What does that mean? Well, uh, the economist's uh, characterization of this is pretty accurate. I mean, a lot of the tension on top of all the other tension between uh, the two great superpowers these days, uh, some of this started as far back as a couple of years ago when uh, the Trump administration decided to uh, reclassify uh, several Chinese news organizations as um, agents rather than agents of the state rather than pure journalistic uh, operations. Mm. Um, and that reclassification uh, also actually resulted in the, uh, I believe, the expulsion of as many as uh, 60 uh, Chinese uh, nationals who were working under the auspices of uh, the uh, Chinese news organizations. Yeah, so the economist said, yeah, that, that 60 well, that was news to me. Like I say, it was like, oh, well, I guess, I guess two can play at this game, and we started it. <laughs> we, we certainly did. Okay, so it raises all kinds of questions, as you say, questions 
between the two superpowers. But also now there's so much suspicion between the U.S. and China about the coronavirus. You know, it raises questions about whether China booted those reporters out because it didn't want them reporting additional cases or new cases or really what the situation was regarding the coronavirus. What do you think? Well, this international crisis has really um, amplified all sorts of international tensions, not just between the U.S. and China, but globally. So it's just another function of of the crisis we're, we're all facing around the world. It's sort of, you know, sort of circled down to uh, to journalism and and the media, and I'm not going to create an international uh, um, incident here, but it's no secret that uh, news media in China is under uh, tighter control than news media in the United States, mm-hmm. and um, th- this is part of a result of that. I mean, th- there have been all sorts of uh, repercussions with uh, you know journalists from you know from uh, mainland in the mainland as well so you know the the international component of this is just another form of uh, you know international uh, diplomacy uh, going awry mm-hmm. I think I saw yesterday too that Iran had uh, revoked some press credentials and that's not quite how they described it in the media did you see that I didn't see the story on Iran, but, um, you know, Iran, it's well known that uh, Iran is extremely repressive with uh, media coverage, both domestic and international. Um, Jason Rezaian, the former Washington Post reporter uh, who was based in Tehran for several years, spent uh, more than a year in an Iranian prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet Jason a couple of years ago when we gave him an award. Yeah, so the, these are the kinds of, uh, this is what happens to journalists in not just China, but in many other countries. And truth be told, I'm not sure our current administration wouldn't want to impose similar restrictions on American reporters domestically. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it seems as though, I also read that several countries had shut down the printing of newspapers under the guise of saying that they were spreading disease. It just felt very opportunistic. I don't know. Do you see it that way? Well, in a time of crisis or a time of war, um, power, you know, strong men will reach for whatever they can to control the message or to create a side a diversion. I mean, I think there's a, you know, just, we don't have to look beyond our borders. I mean, just the a mm-hmm. uh, couple of days ago, the um, uh, the rant against several uh, journalists at the White House briefing uh, certainly shifted focus from any sort of national or international crisis to you know, a, a personality dispute between the president and reporters who are just trying to do their job, whether he, you know, just because he doesn't like the job they're doing, uh, doesn't necessarily change anything in the world. I mean, we're, we're still dealing with, you know, a multifaceted crisis, but now what we do, we, we talk about, you know, the president ranting uh, against uh, TV reporters or newspapers. So it's um, well orchestrated. Oh, that's an interesting word. Well, um, 
You know, again, I've noticed, and I'm not the only one, plenty of uh, scholars and uh, First Amendment uh, experts and media experts seem to have noticed that when uh, things get hot in the kitchen and in the White House, uh, he tends to pick a fight with uh, the news media and certain reporters in particular. It's a great way to shift the burden and change the change the discussion. I see. Interesting. Can you comment in general about reporting that is critical of people in power? Like what is the appropriate way to react to that instead of instead of what we have been seeing? But are there appropriate ways to uh, defend yourself against critical reporting? You know, you fight information with information. Mm-hmm. But you don't throw reporters in jail, you don't threaten reporters, you don't file frivolous lawsuits. And I mean, again, that's all in a picture-perfect world, but, you know, we're now, domestically, we're seeing the same tactics, some of the same tactics imposed on domestic reporters that reporters around the world have been facing for decades. Mm -hmm. Frivolous lawsuits, uh, trumped up, pardon my expression, you know, phony charges for, uh, you know, defamation or twisting language so it had, that, becomes uh, something that can be uh, uh, defamatory, Um, but it's really aimed at uh, punishing opponents or uh, shifting the message rather than correcting the record. We have a body of of law, particularly uh, tort law and defamation, that exists so individuals can protect their reputations from false and harmful information, and there's a legitimate purpose for that. You know, the president, I don't believe, is the kind of entity that should be using uh, this this body of law because he doesn't like content. There's a big difference between false, harmful information and stuff you don't like or stuff that's critical. And, you know, we're seeing that now where journalists that I've met over the years from around the world have been dealing with this uh, for, for decades. Have we ever had a moment like this in U.S. history where there was such disrespect for journalism inside the U.S.? Not in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I read a lot about this. I mean, there, there have been spurts uh, or periods of uh, you know distrust or uh, clamping down on dissidents, but I wouldn't call the mainstream institutional press a dissident organization. You know, even you know we've been drawing many parallels to uh, President Nixon, but as much as he hated uh, reporters and had his, you know, his blacklist and enemies list and things like that, um, I think there was still a certain respect, uh, maybe a grudging respect for the institutions overall that we're not seeing today. Interesting. Explain to me what powers there are inside the United States that protects the press so that, you know, if you have somebody in power who is trying to repress the press, what forces are there in the United States that keeps that from happening? I always point directly to the First Amendment, the First Amendment to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which protects freedom of press, freedom of speech. And it's really, when you look at it, it's really a protection from censorship, really. I see. We've got a long tradition in the United States of uh, supporting free flow of information and um, 
the First Amendment has always been a, a protection against censorship. And again, censorship can be more than just a, a, what we call prior restraint or you know, holding, withholding something from the public. I mean, there, there can be a, a censorship effect with after the fact punishment. Mm. You know, we, we, we really don't have that in the United States, which, which is great. Mm-hmm. Even with the First Amendment, we have independent institutions. I mean, you know, it sounds like a seventh grade civics lesson, but we have three branches of government and they are supposed to operate independently and they operate to protect citizens and to um, represent citizens. And again, maybe some of this is naive or just uh, theoretical, but we still do have institutional independence and uh, we have a court system that is not and should not be beholden to either party. Again, we have these strong institutions that are all bound by the Constitution. When I talk to, I talk to many journalists from all over the world. I've given lectures in some, in several foreign countries, but one of the things that journalists that come here to talk to me about, you know, worry about is that they don't have institutional independence. They don't have an, an independent judiciary or, or judges or courts that will uphold their protections and keep them from, you know, being thrown in jail by dictators or strongmen. Oh my goodness, yes, it must be a terrible fear. So when the president of a country is coming after you, you have with, you know, the threat of legal force and you don't have independent judges who can stand up to that, it it's it's troubling. Mhm. And so what would happen? Suppose suppose we have a person in power who says Forget it. I don't care about the First Amendment. Uh, here, I'm going to you know, sanction you in some way. You, you, this reporter who said something that I don't like, wrote something that I don't like. I'm going to sanction you in some way. Uh, throw you out of the briefing. You can't come in. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along. Sure. Who would step forward and say, "Hang on, you you can't do that"? What what would happen? Well, I mean, we've actually seen that. We've we've had you know a reporter for CNN. Uh, who had his, Jim Acosta, who had oh, yeah. several confrontations, theatrical conf- confrontations uh, with the president, and he had his press credentials to the White House uh, revoked. Oh, He went to federal court and, and challenged that revocation, and a federal judge came back and said, yeah, that was, that was a violation. That was un- an unconstitutional uh, punishment. And it was less on First Amendment grounds, uh, more uh, I believe more on due process grounds, but you couldn't escape the First Amendment element to that too. Another similar uh, situation was when both the president and Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez blocked uh, followers on Twitter. Mm, oh yeah, and critics, and uh, there were there were two separate lawsuits challenging that and courts, uh, federal courts came back and said, that too is a violation of the First Amendment and uh, should not be imposed. So, I mean, we have seen the courts stand up to some of this already, but the ultimate question is, what would happen if some of these tough issues were appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court? And that might be a question many of us don't want to face. I see. That's that's an interesting thought. So, the worry 
would be that the judicial branch also kind of falls in line with the president and doesn't uphold the things that normally we would think that they would. That is that that is a serious concern. And as you watch these cases progress through the lower courts, how worried are you that that things will start to shift? Those of us in the in First Amendment circles usually have a sky is falling approach to any sort of controversy. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> good to know. <laughs> I go to conferences and and, and uh, I talk to, to you know, media lawyers and First Amendment lawyers, and you know you hear that you know, everybody gets uh, concerned real easily. But you know, I think there 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 are grounds for concern because it could be a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for our rights to be uh, eroded or ignored. And unfortunately, some of these issues are perceived as uh, partisan. And when you in- introduce the partisan element to that, then the entire argument gets skewed. But you know, the same restrictions that can be imposed on reporters by one administration can very easily be imposed at a later date in an opposite way. So in some in some ways it is scary, but we also have to have faith that um, at least the Supreme Court will still adhere to at least 100 years of First Amendment precedent and uh, First Amendment values to uh, uphold these democratic traditions. I mean, a lot of this, it sounds like a political science professor or history professor at this point, but there are serious uh, concerns with 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 these actions, and we we hope the independent institutions will 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 uphold our, our our standards and values. What about the U.S. repressing foreign correspondence? Like, I'm to go back to this thing about Trump booting out sixty staff members from the Chinese media. Mm-hmm. Does anybody come forward and say you can't do that? Like, does the First Amendment cover those people? That's a really great question. I mean, the First Amendment would cover them to the extent that their the U.S. government couldn't really take action against them, like they in in any other way. Mm, interesting. I mean, it comes to mind because I'm often impressed, like when I read the Economist or when I read the Financial Times, that the coverage is somewhat different. You know, you get a different perspective than you do if you just read the American media. And so, as a news consumer. It seems to me, well, you know, I want those people to have access as well, because often you get a different side of the story. It just seems to me, I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, The Economist is uh, is a uh, wonderful, nonpartisan, um, uh, independent institution. I think part of the concern, at least with, uh, you know, the, the Chinese news organizations is uh, the ownership issue that. You know that there are questions about who owns the media, um, you know, or that that they're right. uh, government controlled. But you know, I've read a lot of Xinhua, and they they do good reporting too. I see. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just propaganda. CCTV does excellent journalism. So, you know, there there are concerns over you know the, the government control, but they, they do some really good independent journalism too. So. That that plays into a little bit of why uh, the Trump administration decided to expel or reclassify the the, the journalists. 
I mean, that was their, that was their, that was their justification for it. I don't know if it was firmly grounded or not, but that's how they spun it. Right. But it, I mean, Tiger <laughs> is sounding naive, but it doesn't seem to me like that's the right answer. Well, also the bo- the thing that bothers me about that, about the U.S. doing that to Chinese journalists is I have to believe that has a chilling effect on the U.S. reporters too, right? It's like, oh, this, you know, these things can happen. Well, yeah. Um, and, and, and again, back to the, 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 the way the economists describe it. I mean, it's become a tit for tat. So I don't think anybody is served with that. And, you know, you don't want journalists or uh, the media becoming a pawn in a game of international diplomacy. Right. It, reporters are supposed to be independent. I mean, we've lost so much of that cover of independence just in the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, mm. reporters now are targets globally. You know, reporters that go into hot zones or war zones are targeted for violence or kidnapping or assassination. The escalation is, is alarming. Mm. Somebody's got to be able to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the rest of us. Yeah. So to go back to the expulsion, mechanically, how does it work? Does it depend on the country? What do they do? Do they force them to get on a plane? Do they yank their press credentials? Do they reclassify their organization? Or, or how does it all work? I mean, from what I've read, it uh, it sounded like uh, reporters were given, at least in, the, in this recent dispute, uh, reporters were given a letter. First of all, reporters had, you know, they have to register and uh, get credentialed, uh, at least in China and many other countries too. I see. Okay. So they knew where they were, they knew who they were, and they were given letters and they said, uh, basically, uh, you have to turn in your credentials and uh, leave the country within 10 days. Now, I have no further information as to whether everybody complied with that or not, but I'm I'd have to assume that common sense would say, you know, if you get this notice, you better leave. Yeah, get out. Mm -hmm. Because the alternative does not sound really uh, too welcoming. Yeah. I've been doing a series of episodes now about journalism, and it's a profession that I'm interested in and want to support. But I have to say, the more I do these episodes, the more alarmed I become. It's like things things are quite a bit worse than I thought they were. You know, I, I spent a number of years as a newspaper reporter, and um, one of my colleagues once said, uh, even some of the worst days as a reporter are still better than uh, best days in some other professions. Mm-hmm. It's important. It's fun. But people rely on reporters. I mean, I just look at what, what we're dealing with today. I mean, right. ordinary citizens can't go anywhere. And... Uh, you know, ordinary citizens can't go to the hospital just to find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. But you know what? There's a reporter standing out that, outside that hospital, or there's a reporter on a on a Zoom interview or a Facebook interview with somebody who knows something about what's going on, so they can disseminate that to other people. So, uh, just you know, locally we need reporters to know what's going on here, and globally we need reporters to tell us what's going on everywhere else. Mm-hmm. It does seem as though the First Amendment is really a critical and interesting piece of the United States and our culture. Do other countries have similar things? Yeah, I mean, my, most other countries have you know, constitutions and 
statements uh, about you know, protecting the press and uh, protecting uh, freedom of thought or freedom of conscience. But some countries that have these rights in their constitution or their, or their laws might not have the uh, independent judiciary to protect that or the, uh, the wherewithal to absorb what comes with uh, protection of a, a free press. I mean, I, I am hardly the most sympathetic uh, person for the administration, but I would assume that it's probably very grating to be on the receiving end of coverage that you would think is critical of you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I can almost empathize to a certain extent with some of the concerns. Oh, the, the media has been vicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know what? The, the media was vicious to, you know, if you want to categorize vicious. I mean, uh, President Obama didn't have it easy with the press. Oh, no. Neither President Bush had it easy with the press. Bill Clinton didn't have it easy with the press. <laughs> right. And that goes on. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it goes with the territory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, president, people that get into politics have to know and have to accept and absorb critical press because that goes with the territory. And we have an entire body of law that supports that. You know, at the end of the day, your answer, if you're in politics, you're answerable to the public. Mm-hmm. How's the public going to know what's going on if there's not an independent press asking those tough questions? We all rely on it. Mm-hmm. I was interested in this case in Brazil where the government brought charges against Glenn Greenwald. I don't know if you paid any attention to that, but they accused him of stealing information uh, that he wasn't simply reporting information that he was given, but that he was stealing information. And it was kind of a scary case because. Again, you know, my question is, okay, now what happens when the government takes action like this against a reporter? And in that case, if I understood it correctly, a judge did intervene and say, no, the press is protected. And in his opinion, Greenwald hadn't stolen that. Did you follow that case at all? Yeah, tangentially. Um, you know, Glenn Greenwald is an interesting, uh, an interesting entity because he really does straddle the line between being a journalist and being an advocate. Uh-huh. I would say he's part of this sort of new wave of, of people that really straddle that line. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When you become an advocate, you, I think you lose some of your uh, First Amendment protections uh, from an independent standpoint. I mean, we, we see all that with him. We saw, we will see that with uh, Julian Assange when he's finally uh, extradited and prosecuted but that's the new wave i see but it's new but it's old because you can go back go back 100 years uh 200 years and we had highly partisan newspapers back at the beginning of the 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 country and um we're we're almost coming full circle yeah Mm -hmm. i know i have to let you go i've really enjoyed the conversation and roy before i let you go is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners about how to follow your work or or anything well, um, the, the Tully Center for Free Speech, Tully, T-U-L-L-Y dot S-Y-R dot E-D-U. We have some content uh, on, on the site. We have Twitter uh, feed. You can uh, find us on Twitter at uh, the Tully Center for Free Speech. And other than that, I would just hope our, uh, uh, our listeners today recognize that uh, they have important First Amendment rights and um, it's not just the reporters out there, but if the reporters don't have an audience, 
then our rights are going to be somewhat muted anyway. So you know, the reporters are out there telling stories and uncovering information for, for all of us. So just uh, keep reading and asking critical questions. Good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for the work that you do. It was my pleasure. I look forward to listening. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near-daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.